0: Dungeon Designers Guild. I am your guild master, Stephen Leviathan. You are listening to Season 1, Episode 2 of DDG Pod, and we are happy to report that at the time of this recording, our first episode has already been downloaded by role players in 20 different countries and across four different continents. Thank you to all who listened, followed, retweeted, complimented, and constructively criticized. You are all helping us to make this project a success. And for those listeners who enjoyed the white noise in our guest's audio last episode, stay tuned. You are in for some interesting sound effects in this episode, too. While we all love exploring dungeons and slaying dragons, in an industry hegemonized by the fantasy genre, DDG Pod strives to cover a wide variety of RPGs, which is why our second episode, we will be traveling to the far future to speak with the captain of the best established science fiction role playing franchise in tabletop history. So without further ado, let's get on with our show. Today, on Dungeon Designers Guild, we have encountered a tabletop titan who has traveled to us from the starports of the far future, the designer of the best-selling science fiction role-playing game of all time, Mark Miller. Mark, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thanks for having me. Good morning.
0: And where in the vastness of space are you calling in from?
1: Oh, a tabletop titan, is that what you said? That's really enough appropriate that. I'm in the middle of Illinois. I've been here for 30, 40 years. Bloomington, Normal, Illinois. That's where Game Designers Workshop was once upon a time. And when it closed down, I just stayed here.
0: Okay. So is it not where you're from originally then?
1: Uh, No, I was a Navy kid. My father was in the Navy. And so we moved all over the place. But when he uh, retired, we ended up in Illinois. I went to school here. And after I was in the army, I uh, ended up here. thought I'd stay here a couple of years and ended up never leaving.
0: So you traveled around quite a bit as your father was assigned from post to post?
1: Exactly. Yeah. I was born in Maryland. We lived in Connecticut. We lived at Pearl Harbor. We ended up living in suburban Chicago and that's where he retired. So that's where I ended up spending my high school years.
0: Was he at Great Lakes?
1: No, he wasn't. He, um, had a um, a naval reserve training center. What a what a job, you know. He was regular navy, but he was uh, running this training center. So.
0: Okay. And uh, out of curiosity, uh, where in Connecticut were you?
1: Uh, New London, across the river from uh, the naval base at New London.
0: So I've actually visited that base to see the Nautilus, the first nuclear submarine, which they have there on display. You know, uh,
1: I wasn't old enough. My brother went, my parents had invitations and they took my brother to see the launching of the Nautilus. But I was just six and they didn't think I could handle it, so they didn't take me. I mean, what a ripoff.
0: Well, sorry to hear that. It's fun to, to climb through. So, you know, it's obviously stationary now, but yeah, it was fun to see. So you ended up going to high school in suburban Illinois. Is that where you started gaming? Is that where you picked up the hobby?
1: Not, You know, this is my, my gaming story. Gaming is hard. Gaming is hard to understand. I bought a copy of Avalon Hills D-Day. I was fascinated with it. I thought it'd be a wonderful game to play. And I got my friend. We took time. We we met after school at his house and tried to figure out how to play it. And it just was totally beyond us. Well, you know, we were like fourteen year old boys and nobody to show us how to play, nobody to tell us what was going on. We were just totally lost. We had no idea what it was doing. And so we put it down and I didn't get back to gaming until after I got out of the army. So I ended up you know, I went to college, I went, to, went in the army, I got out of the army, I ended up here in Bloomington, Normal, Illinois. And uh, we had a game club here. Uh, this is fascinating, I think, because it's the way game clubs should work. And the people were just well into SPI games, war games, board war games. And they had a program, they called it a program, it was just, if you want to learn how to play games, we'll teach you. And so I said, gee, I would like to learn how to play these games. And they paired me up with Dr. Southard Maudry, who was a geography professor. And we met in his office in the evening, and I was allowed to pick the game I put picked France 1940, and he laboriously and carefully and thoughtfully explained every bit of the rules. We went through them. He said, oh, this is Zones of Control. Look, this is what it looks like on the map. This is what you do. This is what it means. This is movement. This is how the counters work. This is how combat works. He explained it to me. And by the end of the evening, we had played one turn of that game. (laughs) But... By the end of the evening, I knew how to play this sort of game um, in a way that reading the rules would never teach me, but a thoughtful, careful teacher, one-on-one, taught me how. I am forever grateful for that because it changed my life. I don't think I ever have played a game of France 1943 to completion, but that doesn't matter. I knew how to play these games, and my life was literally changed forever. <laughs>
0: Excellent. So at the time, the the hobby was largely games that were rooted in uh, battle simulations and things like that. It sounds like, right?
1: Exactly right. The entire hobby was Avalon Hill games, and uh, Avalon Hill probably wide, you know, more mass appeal games, simpler games, and uh, SPI games, which were more detailed and more in depth, and not as mass market. The entire market was dominated by. Those two companies. Okay,
0: and so Avalon Hill, uh, which is now part of Wizards of the Coast, their games were largely, like you said, with you know France 1943, and I don't know if that was theirs specifically, but they would pick up like a historic event and build a game around it. Is that accurate?
1: It's accurate, and that is my my original part of game design. That game club at Illinois State University. Frank Chadwick, Rich Banner, myself, and Lauren Wiseman were there playing all the time. We enjoyed what we, we enjoyed these games, and you know, at that time, early seventies, there was a thought that somebody should take Stalingrad. This one board map of Russia and blow it up and make it a huge detailed game of the Russian front in World War II. And it was literally, the magazines were filled with that thought. Somebody would write a letter to the editor. Somebody would, would write an article and say, we should do this or we should do that. And I, I know that SPI in New York talked about doing it, but Rich and Frank said, we should do this. And they drew their own maps and laid them out and researched at the university library the bat- orders of battle and what the countermixes should be. And so then in early 1973, they proposed that they should publish that game. It was called you know, in German, Drang nach Osten, DNO, Push to the East, and invited all the game club members to participate. We all got together and did all kinds of things to produce it and kind of pooled our money and Made this immense, huge game with five maps and fourteen hundred counters. It was a monster game. It sold for almost fifteen dollars back then, which was amazing. And uh, that's the origins of Game Designers Workshop, the company that we formed to publish that. And that's my background in terms of games. I was publishing. I was working on historical games, not role-playing games. In fact, role-playing games didn't exist at the time. And so, I'm producing DNO. Led to a uh, a second game in the series, other games in that series, others historical war games. I did a game on the Chaco War in Bolivia and Paraguay 1932 to 36. Frank Chadwick did a game on Torgau. Lauren Wiseman did his uh, now classic game Eagles about the lost Eagles in in Germany in 88 or nine. I used the term legendary game designers workshop because we produced a lot of games that people who were there at the time and bought them still remember them. So that was um, my background in historical war game. What What an education. I was a student. I had a lot of free time, and I could just fiddle with games all I wanted. And uh, I learned the craft of making historical war games, researching, making game rules that made things work. I just want to say, the gaming industry—we think we know—we think of the gaming hobby, but for those professionals in it, the gaming industry was an extremely friendly industry that I can recall in that period. SPI in New York said that they were going to have a, a, a gaming seminar at their offices. And basically it was a way of bringing people in and selling them games. And so we, Game Designers Workshop, just said, let's drive to New York and see that. And we literally piled in a car and drove all day and all night to get to New York City. Wow, you know, eyes are open and are looking at the big, tall buildings because we're from the middle of the corn country. And uh, SPI was extremely welcoming. I mean, they literally let us sleep in their offices overnight. They were there 24 hours anyway. And we got to see their entire operation. We're a rival game company, a rival publisher. And they just welcomed us with open in arms, invited us to sit in and a... a business meeting to see how they did things, were happy to show us the games they were testing and playing, happy to show us how their computer worked. I still remember the um, just the hospitality that we had from SPI. And I, not all industries are like that. Industries get to be cutthroat as they protect their territory and their customer base and everything else. And that's not how gaming was. Everybody was happy to help each other out. I still remember that as a wonderful way to get into the business, which is a, I'll bring you another story. You know, all these games are based on hex grids, uh, hex maps. We printed locally a 28 by 36 or something sheet of hexagons that we could then draw with magic marker or sharpies to make our maps. And we went to the first game convention they had, which was uh, the first Origins in Baltimore. I don't even remember the year. It must have been 75, perhaps.
0: Did Origins predate Gen Con?
1: Well, did it? I don't. No, it didn't. But Gen Con, Gen Con at that time was literally, you know, meeting in Gary Gygax's basement. And so it dates back to a lot of time. But Origins was an interesting game convention because it had a lot of booths with game companies selling their products. And that was not what Gen Con was doing. So all these game companies are, are here at, at the first origins at Johns Hopkins university in Baltimore and some of Jim Dunnigan. He's the, was the head of SPI. Some of his minions looked around and saw people with hex grids and said, we invented the hex grid. Well, they didn't, but they said, (laughs) and, and we're just kind of, I always say bullying people, you know, it certainly worried me when they said we invented hex grids. And, um, They were going to tell on us to Jim because they thought that was their proprietary thing. And they went to Jim Dunnigan and said, these people are using Hectorids and we need to do some copyright work against them and make them stop or charge them or something like that. And to his credit, I mean, Jim Dunnigan still with us, but to his credit, he said, nah, (laughs) literally, I remember the quote. He said, there's room in this industry for everybody, and we don't need to be restricting the basic grid that we draw our, X, our, our game maps on. And just said, it's open, anybody can use them. In fact, we print them, you're ha- you're free to use ours, you know, you can cut our name off the edge and use them on your maps if you want. And I thought that's another example of how embracing the game business was, that That could have stifled development for years as we struggled to either prove that hex grids were available to everybody or find some alternative. And instead, he just said, there's plenty of room for all of us. It's a great business for us to be in. It's a great hobby. It's a great business. And and I'm glad that it's where my life took me.
0: And something so rudimentary as a hex grid—that would have been hard to copyright, I think.
1: It would have been, well, it, it would may have been hard to copyright, but that doesn't mean that somebody with resources can't make it hard for everybody else. You know, at the time we were still all part time or going to school or doing something. Nobody had the resources to fight that in in court. Nobody had the resources to fight back. It would have just stifled the industry for ten years as we tried to figure out how to make that work and he just jump-started us because now all these little game companies could do whatever they wanted and didn't have to worry about using hex
0: excellent so so we start out with the the war games at what point did you discover role-playing as you said when you were designing war games role-playing didn't exist yet was that something that you started to arrive at on your own or was it were you influenced by Gary and TSR or both
1: well well in this in the late 60s I was at the University of Illinois, and um, in political science, I was in a, I took a course where the professor, Dr. Lou Gold, taught political science with a role-playing model. He basically would assign various roles to students in the class. You're a senator from Illinois. Research what Illinois and a senator needs to know. You're a judge on the Supreme Court, you're this, all these people, and then everybody would research their their particular role, and then he would create some problem that everybody had to talk about, talk with each other about what they thought, and then finally make presentations and actually play that role. I call it analog role-playing. You have to research everything and then you have to kind of assume that role as like play acting. And that was my background in role playing. So then, all of the things we were doing at the game company, this is the early 70s, was in board war games, historical war games. And there was a huge historical war game following in Michigan with some organized clubs and a lot of players and some good hobby stores. And when Gary published Dungeons and Dragons, it caught on there. Those gamers visited us in. Illinois, because they liked our war games. And as a matter of, uh, by the way, they said, we've got this game that we've been playing too. And they showed us the original little wood grain box, Dungeons and Dragons, which looked really interesting to all of us. And so immediately somebody grabbed the box from this person, ran downstairs from our offices to the uh, printing shop and photocopied the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) We're very aware of copyright. We also ordered copies immediately, and as soon as the real copies came in, we threw away, we discarded the uh, photocopies because that would be wrong. But we figured we could at least make copies and use it while we waited for the ones we ordered to come in.
0: I think the statute of limitations on that's probably passed. So.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it has. But, you know, we were trying to do the right thing while still getting what we wanted. Dungeons & Dragons took our offices by storm. By this time, we published several games and we had offices, upstairs in uptown normal Illinois, looking out on the main cross section, which doesn't even have a stoplight. And after about a week, Frank Chadwick, he was the president of the company, made one of his pronouncements. And he said, you can't play Dungeons and Dragons while the sun is up because we were getting no work done at all. Everybody was playing D- D&D all day long, every day. We kept we played just as much D&D as just was at night now instead of during the day. And we did our regular work and design work during the day. But as I say, Dungeons and Dragons took our offices by storm. And, you know, the contrast was immediately apparent to me. Gary's role-playing game digitized what was an, previously an analog process. I didn't have to research what this person would do because I just had the numbers to say how strong he was and how smart he was and, and everything else. Okay, so at that point, Frank Chadwick, you know, Game Designers Workshop, Frank Chadwick, a prolific designer, a genius of a designer, interesting person, able to, to just come up with interesting game concepts, if a little too deep sometimes, because he really thought deeply. Rich Banner, who had the art sense to make things work and know how to tell printers to print things, I was along for the ride. I enjoyed designing things, but I kind of took up the things nobody else wanted to do. I worked on the air system because nobody wanted to really deal with it. I worked on naval warfare because other people weren't doing that. But Frank Chadwick looked at Dungeons & Dragons and designed a role-playing game which was totally different from Dungeons & Dragons. It was called On Guard. It's the Three Musketeers era. And uh, he basically, working with another designer we had in-house at the time, Daryl Haney, did a little sword fighting game, you know, a dueling game with uh, thrusts and parries and all that sort of stuff. It was an interesting simulation of fencing. Well, once you have that, fencing isn't that much fun just time and time again. And Frank cloaked all of this in a role-playing game of the Three Musketeers. So everybody generates a character, kind of like a D&D character. And uh, we added social status so that you have some people low social status and and, and kind of boors and some of them, high prince-like people. And there was a genius to that game because it was a role-playing game just like Dungeons & Dragons, and yet totally different. Dungeons & Dragons was a campaign. You generated your characters, and you played them and tried to build them higher and higher and higher. And this on-guard game, some people still play it today, was meant to be a one-shot. You play it, you generate your characters, and you play it this evening, and, you know, the characters go out to the clubs in Paris and they meet rivals and they argue and that's reason for having sword fights and so they fight with each other. But the the intriguing part of it was he added social standing. And so we had a group of people and when we generate the characters for the night, somebody had the highest social standing and he was the the de facto leader because he had the highest social standing. Everybody else got points for sucking up to him, literally (laughs) hanging around the big guy gave you more status points and you were better off because you did what you wanted to or you you brought in drinks or you, you helped him out or whatever it was. Well, in any given evening, one of us would be the top dog. You know, it, it wasn't always Frank who was the top dog. And so we all enjoyed the role playing of sucking up to somebody else. And the person low on the relative totem pole enjoyed being the top dog that night. And at the end of the evening, we didn't keep our characters. We threw them away. And the next time we played, somebody else got to be top dog. It really was an interesting social role-playing experience. The game didn't catch on. It was popular enough, but it didn't catch on. But it demonstrated the things you could make happen in role-playing. In fact, Gary Gygax Commented on the game. He saw it. He has played it at least once. He commented it was an example of how you could make a role playing game without just copying D anD. d And I think that was a great compliment.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and explored different aspects of role playing. It sounds like uh, is on guard. You said it was based on the Three Musketeers, but were you you were playing original characters? You weren't playing uh, D'Artagnan or anything, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Because it was rolling dice. You know, you generate your character. And so in one sense, it was three Musketeers, but another, it was totally new characters that you got to shape and that were shaped by the dice. So we put that out. It was a six by nine booklet, very nice little product. And it influenced me, especially the social standing part of it influenced me. So a year or two later, I said, there's all these fantasy role-playing games out there. And I think we should do a science fiction game. And uh, the way Game Designers Workshop operated at that point is you could do anything you wanted. And so they <laughs> said, sure, you go ahead and do that, Mark. And I spent the next seven or eight months creating Traveler, science fiction role-playing. In my mind, I thought it was a universal system. it could do You could do anything you wanted. You could reproduce any science fiction story or universe you wanted to. It didn't work out that way, but that's what I thought I was doing. I worked on that for about a year. Early in 1977, it was complete and ready to go to press. And we sent it off to press. And about a month later, there was an article in Time magazine about this new science fiction movie, Star Wars, which we'd never heard of. <laughs> had no idea what it was going to be like. And so I remember several of us from the company piled in our car. Again, we did that a lot. Piled in the car, drove up to the Chicago area where it was just opening and saw the you know one of the first showings of Star Wars, which... I can remember still Lauren Wiseman and myself sitting there saying, Oh, we can do that in Traveler. We can do that in Traveler. We don't have uh, lightsabers, but we had everything else. And so our game burst on the scene literally at the same time as the first Star Wars movie.
0: Which is especially interesting because there are a lot of obviously unintentional similarities between, you know, you have the sort of like roguish spacefarers that you see in, in the Star Wars, you know, that, that are so beloved from the Star Wars universe. So out of curiosity, what other media were you drawing from, obviously prior to Star Wars specifically, that that influenced sort of the aesthetic of Traveler? You know,
1: I call myself a classically trained science fiction reader that when I was in college, my first year was commuting to downtown Chicago, to go to the University of Illinois. And so I would take the train in in the morning and then go to class. And at the end of the day, I'd take the train back home, suburban Chicago. But I found uh, walking from the campus to the train station, you have to go past Madison Street, which was Skid Row. I mean, it was dive bars and homeless people and single room occupancy hotels. And I, I would stop in at a little bodega, which had individual cigarettes for sale in a little cup by the cash register. And I would get a, you know, a soft drink or something. But I found a box of cover-stripped, astounding and analog science fiction magazine. So clearly, I don't know where it came from, because my goodness, it was an almost complete collection from 1947 to 1966. And I don't know where it came from or where it was there. I never thought to ask. And it sat there the whole time, that whole semester that I did that. And I would buy one every day for a quarter and read it on the way home on the train and then throw it away when I got home. But in the course of it, I read, you know, I was a fast reader. There was all these classic short stories and novels from the golden age of science fiction. And so I knew all those stories and they were lurking in the back of my mind when I was writing Traveler. I was a voracious reader anyway. So I'll tell you some of the systems that I think of when I think of Traveler. One is the Doomerous series by E.C. Tubb. It's like 20 volumes of this adventurer in a kind of a generic science fiction universe. There's Asimov's Foundation. I say, do you know that Foundation is based on Traveler? I say, I say to people, and they say, oh, yeah, it's got a giant science fiction, it's got a giant galactic empire, and I name all these characteristics, and they say, wow, is that so? The only problem is that... uh, Foundation came out in 1947, and Traveler came out in 1977. So, Right.
0: I was going to say, I don't know about the math there.
1: <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, there is a, a fairly well-documented statement that Josh Whedon's Firefly is based on his college Traveler campaign. And somebody has been very careful... To point out that of all the science fiction role-playing games available, Traveler was probably the only one that fit the time frame and availability to make that what he uh, based his system on. He doesn't say what the name of the system is, but it was Traveler.
0: That's plenty believable to me. And and, and when he had set out, as you said, you, you want a generic rule set with you know the science fiction trappings where people could go and play a space western or you know even though Star Wars hadn't happened yet something similar to Star Wars you wanted all of that available right that was the that was the original intention that's what we
1: wanted. and you know we we produced Traveller in 1977 and for the first year that's all we had just the three book set almost generic and we sold A ton of them. You know, businesses survive because they keep good records and they know what they're selling and they find out what sells well and what doesn't, and it tells them some way of predicting what they can do in the future. We knew that we could produce two or three thousand copies of a board war game, a historical war game, and sell them in the course of two or three years, and maybe even reprint them at the time after that. But our expectation was you're going to print two or three thousand of something. We sold 10,000 copies of Traveler in the first year. We must have reprinted it four times. Wow. And that was just an eye-opener to see that we could sell that many of something. Certainly at the end of that first year with just the one game out, our analysis or our numbers said, we need to produce supplements and adventures for this system because there's demand for it and we should meet that demand. But once you start making adventures, you're gonna to have to start building a, a background. We had to if we're gonna have a space navy, we pretty need pretty much need to have an empire that has a space navy and then a rival empire that has another space navy so they can fight each other. If we're going to do something on the military or on the scouts, we're gonna to have to have background and a universe. And very slowly the traveler universe evolved to try and respond to that. And at the same time, we wanted to build a universe that was understandable to people without a lot of explanation, that we didn't want it run by mysterious hooded monks or adepts, that we had to then explain who they were. We just wanted an empire with an emperor and a bunch of nobles who were totally understandable to any person who picked up the game system. And that's what we did. And that's the start of the evolution of the background for our travel. And
0: uh, it just kept going. And so that was where the Third Imperium, what became the Standard Traveler setting, started. Was right. we we need right. additional materials, and it can't just be mechanics,
1: right? And it, it needed to be understandable to the wide swath of mostly Americans, but Europeans as well. And it was, you know, it, people could add their own their own detail to it without it really changing what we were doing. And so they could add their own little. Pocket Empire over here, or their own little group of people over here, and it didn't change the major thrust of what
0: we were talking about. And if they really wanted to, they could just come up with their own setting and, and, and run it. And people do that too. I don't know how OGLs would have worked at the time. Was anyone publishing settings that were intended for Traveler after you released the game and it didn't have a setting?
1: They would do their own campaigns to play with their own people, but nobody was really publishing anything. Very early in that process, we met Judges Guild, which was doing support material for Dungeons and Dragons. They wanted to expand. They were only, you know, 60 miles south of us. And so uh, they negotiated a license to do traveler support material. And they published a broad spectrum of, of adventures, of deck plans, of uh, play aids. You know, it, it met a need that we weren't meeting, that they, they really were more prolific than we were.
0: And you mentioned they were they were sixty miles south of you in Illinois, or in where were yeah. they based?
1: They were based in Decatur. Okay, in Bloomington, Normal, and Decatur is directly south of us. You know, we come back to the development of role playing and the development of games. So we started out doing board games, and Dana Lombardi, he's still out there, he's doing games still. But at the time, and we're talking about the early seventies, he worked for a magazine called Model Retailer, and That's what the hobby stores were at the time, It's just row on row of models of cars and planes and ships and tanks and whatever, enough to support an industry, the hobby industry of America. But it was hobby and craft stores. And uh, some of those stores, some few of them, were selling toy soldiers and maybe even a little bit of toy soldier miniature rules. And they ended up stocking board games, war games. And then role playing games. But Dana wrote an article, he did an analysis and he wrote an article and pointed out that a model kit would sell, you know, within six months of stocking it. So you had an industry you, you had an inventory turn of maybe two a year that you stock this stuff and you hold it to a certain length of time and you'll probably sell and then you can restock. And he pointed out that board war games and role playing games turned five or six times a year. The velocity of sales was significantly better than models. That's the sort of thing that catches the attention of a store manager. If he thinks that he can sell stuff faster and make more money, He's going to do it. Well, you look around you, there aren't model stores anymore. There are game stores. They may have models in them, but the industry changed then when it became a game hobby industry instead of a model and kit hobby industry. That was significant. That when we first, when Game Designers Workshop first sold games we sold them exclusively by mail. People had to write us a check and send it in in an envelope, and we would fill the order and ship out what they wanted. Those games were in brown paper envelopes and then large, clear Ziploc bags. So we pioneered, the Game Designers Workshop pioneered that packaging system, an inferior packaging system. It wasn't very good, but at least put product together in a way that could be sold at a game store. We moved to boxes, color boxes, lots of uh, nice art on the boxes. And that's where we were literally there at the beginning of the industry. And by the, started in 70s. By the end of the decade, by the beginning of 1980 or so, the game industry existed as a separate force out there, and GDW was a significant part of
0: it interesting. So you started doing the, the boxes and the, and the colorful boxes, and obviously Traveler comes in the, the three books set in a box. But you mentioned that there was lots of artwork involved in the previous games. The original Traveler had no artwork. Is that correct? That's right. Was that a decision? And if so, why?
1: It was the practicality of it. Traveler was a word game, you know, painting word pictures. And we did not have access to an especially good or responsive set of artists easily. And I was... I'm a wordsmith rather than an artist. And so it was very much word-heavy art light. I think that was to its benefit because people got to build their own ideas of what those things looked like. We didn't make them say it had to look like this. And as a result, I think everybody could put their own spin on what the contents of the game, the components, should look like. I wouldn't say it was deliberate. I think it was fortuitous. But then we also talk about we didn't have good art. We didn't have especially good art. We started looking for art later, but at the beginning, we didn't. We bandied about a couple of ideas on how travelers should be packaged, but none of them had really caught fire. And so we finally came down to the idea at the time when we had to put the package together. What are we going to do? We've got the words, we've got the typesetting ready, we're all set. What's the cover going to look like? And we did not have art that we agreed was good. And so Rich Banner, the art director at the time, is the one who said, well, let's try this. And he just kind of laid out this classic stark black book with a red stripe and some text words in a well-chosen font Optima was the name of the font and um, produced the classic idea of the three little black books with a red stripe and white letters. And uh, that became the icon. It's still the icon for how Traveler is presented.
0: And it does. It stands out in game stores. You know, I I like good art as much as the next gamer, but when you have all these busy covers and then you see something like Traveler that is mostly black with the red and white lettering, it does stand out. It does catch your attention.
1: Yeah, it's out. Know, it, it, it made itself apparent. Yes.
0: Right. So... Initially, it came in the three-book set. Was that decision influenced by Dungeons & Dragons, or did you decide to break it into three books for a different reason?
1: Well, you know, I'll be careful that I don't embarrass myself, but I remember sitting down, starting to type up what I thought these rules ought to be, and I thought our our typesetting system at the time was a cold-type system by IBM. Basically, it was, you know, one of these golf ball little font- balls on an electric typewriter, and it had a huge box on the floor next to it that read magnetic cards. And so one card would hold about a page, and literally you had to take this IBM-sized card covered with iron oxide, and you put it in the slot, and all of a sudden the machine knew what was the words for that page. And then you could type it out and backspace, and it certainly was not a modern what-you-see-is-what-you-get system, but I could type it in, it would remember the keystrokes, I could edit and fix the things, and I was just typing pages in. And when I sat down to start, I thought, gee, I know kind of what I want to do. I've got some concepts in here. Where do I start? And so I took out my Dungeons and Dragons, Three Little Black Books, and the first book was Characters in Combat. And I said, I think I'll start with that. And I just started typing. And if, if you pull out the original Three Little Black Books and you pull out the three books from Dungeons and Dragons, you'll find that they pretty much correspond. <laughs>
0: Right, so we had the characters in combat book in the in the original setup here. Yep. And we had the let's see, we had the Starships book and then the Worlds and Adventures. Yep. And so so that at least was influenced by Dungeons and Dragons as far as putting it in the three bindings and everything. But mechanically, a very different game. Uh, it doesn't draw a lot mechanically from Dungeons and Dragons, is that direction? that's a,
1: that's true, certainly true. We we eschewed multiple dice, multiple sided dice and went with six sided dice because they're easier to access. That even at that time, even that multi sided dice were hard to get. And six-sided dice were easy, so six-sided dice were more understandable. So we settled on six-sided dice as a reaction to the esoteric dice of Dungeons & Dragons. We decided we were going to... Fantasy role-playing is well-served by having a character who starts at 18 and works his way up. We wanted characters who could be you know, the broad range of Star Trek or Star Wars. You have not only the kid, but you have the old sage. You have the uh, the wide range of people of various ages, and we needed to have a system that let that happen, rather than everybody starts low and has to work their way up. So, yes, our system was, was significantly at variance to what people expected from Dungeons and Dragons.
0: And at least in Traveler 5 today, there's a mechanic where the dice have different colors. Was that in the original? No, there wasn't.
1: You know, in in one sense, Traveler 5, which is the current edition, one of two editions, the other one is Mongoose Traveler. Traveler 5 tries to hark back to what classic Traveler was, but adds in Twenty or thirty years worth of experience. We abandoned things that don't work, but things that do work we kept um, or added in. And one of them is I, I added it added flux. I call it flux, which is a strange construction. You know, roll one die, take that as a positive number, and subtract the second die. Roll again, subtract the second die. You end up with a a range from centered on zero, ranging from minus five to plus five, which is a nice mechanic for a range of die mods that you can apply to what's going on, a a range of variations. And to keep those dice straight, I had to specify one light, one dark, or one red, one black, whatever. So we did that. They're just variants on the theme of roll six-sided dice. The original classic Traveler was rules light. You know, it, it had some basic... Throws that you had to do, but it was not a lot of detail complexity on how to roll the dice. The dice were, and I always think should be incidental to what people are trying to do. All the dice do is is make circumstances not totally predictable. There's always a chance that the dice roll is say, you're going to say you can't do that, and so your best laid plans are foiled and you have to think of something different. You know, that's where the imagination of the role players comes in. Well, okay, we can't break through the fence. What are we going to do? Well, let's try something else. What would that be? And that is so much fun to watch as a game master, to watch players think up ideas and try them on me to see if they'll work. You know, so I'm going to digress for a minute here, talking about role-playing in general. Sure. Role-playing saved the gaming Hobby, And I don't mean just by having better sales. Early in those days, before Gary Gygax came along, the gaming hobby was dominated by World War II military war game simulations. Panzer Blitz was big. Tank battles on the Russian front of World War II. The Russians against the Germans. The Germans had all these cool tanks and cool armored units. And the Russians just had a lot of things, but not a lot of interest in them. And as a result, gamers gravitated to Nazi stuff, the red and white and black motifs. Oh, that's what Traveler has, but that's not why it has it. The swastikas, the interesting uniforms, there were clubs that would have uniforms, game publications that glorified Nazism in a way that would be in- possible to even tolerate today and i think that gaming was going down totally the wrong path a lot of gamers were teenagers uh, young adults and they had no idea what they were talking about jim dunnegan uh, made a comment that these people into this historical wargaming could tell you the muzzle velocity of the m1 rifle but were only vaguely aware of who Franklin Delano Roosevelt was. Their understanding was of, of history was focusing on equipment and things rather than grander political themes. And at a very superficial level, at the lower level, there was a lot of Nazi glorification.
0: Well, that's terrifying.
1: It is terrifying. And Gary... Uh, made it possible for those kids to be evil lords without being Nazis and uh, many of those people who were at that time into the glorification mode really picked up on Dungeons and Dragons and shifted their attention there and they could become as I say evil lords without having to be Nazis and without the social stigma attached to it. I mean, they could be Darth Vader. They could be the equivalent in a fantasy role playing setting. Saruman or someone. Yeah. Yes. Without any of the associated social stigma, without, you know, nobody rolls their eyes at being Saruman. Nobody rolls their eyes at you being Darth Vader. They might think you're stupid, but that's different. They don't think you're evil. And, uh, The hobby saved itself when it adopted role-playing and the ability to do those things and moved away from Nazi glorification. And I think that that is an unsung value that Dungeons & Dragons produced for the hobby.
0: So role-playing, I would never have come to that conclusion. Role-playing games had a negative impact on neo-Nazism. That's incredible, and so because, as you said, it provided people with the things that they were looking for from a real historical villain, but in a totally fictitious way. Which in, it does lighten it. it; does in some ways make it I I don't want to say make it okay, but I totally understand that process.
1: You, know, you you can do those things. You can pursue those pursuits. The gamers only had a shallow understanding of what they were doing. They liked the regalia and the symbology and the cool uniforms and the cool weapons. But they weren't, they really weren't anti-Semitic. They really didn't want to kill six million Jews. That's, they didn't even, weren't even aware of it. They were dealing with the paraphernalia without the philosophy and if you're gonna do that you might as well do you know you can do evil lords in Dungeons and Dragons and even the even the evil lords in Dungeons and Dragons aren't trying to kill, you know, entire populations just because they hate them. There is not a philosophy, an evil philosophy behind their being evil. It's just another alignment on a chart. So at the time, you know, you have young boys, and I'm talking about 13 teens or pre-driving teens, and they're thinking about what they're going to do with their life. And role-playing lets them plan a trip, budget for something, figure out how to get from here to there, think through what equipment I need to travel somewhere, I'm talking about Traveler, but I'm talking about Dungeons & Dragons. I'm talking about role-playing games in general, fantasy or horror or whatever. But they get to think through what they would do and even make mistakes that are not fatal, you know. Think of all the role-playing adventures kids do. They start at one point, they go to another point, they have to have equipment, they have to have food, they have to deal with problems along the way and weather and breakdowns and everything else, and they get to think it through. And those kids end up more able to deal with real situations later because they've been able to play out role-playing situations earlier. And I think that that's another great benefit from this hobby. It's amazing that people thought role-playing was the tool of the devil.
0: (laughs) Yeah. um... And and
1: by the way, if you go, well, not this year because of the pandemic, but if you go to modern role-playing conventions, modern game conventions, they're family affairs, you know, and I don't just mean parent and their young children. Parents take their teenage children to game conventions and everybody has fun. And what other place can you take your teenage children to and enjoy things and interact with them except role-playing conventions? I'm a, I'm a great proponent of the gaming hobby. It literally is accessible to almost anybody who wants to get into it. It's fun. It's good, wholesome fun. It's a situation where literally it's possible to play, you know, to interact with your teenage children. And I don't think there's much else that that's actually
0: possible. It's true. There are um, there are very few uh, things that sort of bridge the gap there. So a lot of what you just said there, as far as the you know the, the military aspects, people that were you know they were looking back at. You know, obviously, the hobby came out of the industry came out of the the wargaming hobby. A lot of that finds its way into Traveler. Were these things that you had all realize that you had already realized when you were writing Traveler?
1: You know, we just wrote the, wrote things that we thought were fun or interesting or that we wanted to do. But our background was historical war games, so we certainly thought, you know, Dungeons & Dragons is miniatures-based. Gary was a miniatures person. He wrote miniatures rules before he wrote Dungeons & Dragons. He thought in terms of miniatures moving around on a table with miniature terrain and counting movements in inches and ranges of things in My background, Game Designers Workshop background, was more board war games with hex grids. And so we thought not in terms of inches or miniatures, but in terms of board games with counters. And they are naturally more like conflict simulations so their battles or their economic situations rather than the painted miniatures stuff
0: yeah and a lot of what you had said you know with it being instructive to younger generations as far as things like resource management i mean that's a crucial part of traveler and always was from the from the beginning right
1: that's right that's right we were much more Economic-based games, empire-building games, rather than massive miniatures battles on tables. Not that we didn't do that. I mean, Frank Chadwick was a miniatures game person too. But our focus was more the things you could do in major board war games with hex grids, rather than tabletop things.
0: You'd mentioned the sort of like role-playing, uh, you know, the the sort of military regalia and things like that. The military aspects of Traveller were there from the beginning too, right? The this sort of notion that. You know, a lot of characters had served in some sort of in some sort of space, military of one version or another, right?
1: Right. Well, I was a veteran. I just served my time. And so, you know, I had watched and seen how that was. I'm convinced that the military is a way you get skills. You know, you turn 18, you graduate high school, and you know how to do nothing. And so what are you going to do? Joining the Army or the Air Force or the Navy or signing up in some... You know, I had, some, I had a high school friend, I long afterwards I discovered that, you know, when he turned 18 and graduated high school, his father took him downtown Chicago and signed him up at an apprentice program at a printer. And he spent the rest of his life working on a printing press, you know, in the printing industry. Well, that was his career. And then 20 years later, when I met him, he was now kind of traveling America in a Uh, a Winnebago because he could, because he'd spent 20 years building up his savings and learning how to do things. But it's no fun playing being a printer for 20 years. So you might as well have a system that lets us skip past that. And now you can do your
0: adventuring. Absolutely. So in Traveler, can you describe a little bit about uh, the thought process behind the, the character creation and, and touch on how it works?
1: You know, Dungeons & Dragons is a level-based system where you start out at 18 and after you get so many experience points, you uh, move to the next level. You, you know, become a second level character, and a third level, and a 17th level lord, and you have more skills and you have more hit points and all that sort of stuff. But it's based on your experience in the game. Traveler, we said, you start out at 18 and you don't know anything, and so you can do what we call a prior career. And you pick a career, you join the Navy or the Army or you do the scouts. Uh, Each of them has its benefits. It'll teach you different skills. It will teach you different abilities. It will uh, give you different rewards when you get out. And you play through that, it's it's like a mini-game at the beginning of the the game when you generate your character. It doesn't take that long, but you end up with somebody who's not 18, but 34. And uh, now he's a former captain in the army. So he has some experience and he knows how to use this weapon and he knows how to, uh, to do land navigation and he knows how to drive a tank. And all of a sudden he has some value to himself without having to play through and risk getting killed all the time. And so we end up with a mix of characters based on some decisions that the group of players has made. This guy's a scout, and he knows how to. He has a scout ship that we can travel around in, and he knows how to do exploration, and he knows how to fix starship engines. The other character was army, and so he knows some military fighting skills. Just like a Dungeons and Dragons group as the cleric and the wizard and the fighter, we're going to have the explorer and the soldier and even the professor. And each of them creates his own, adds his own particular value to the system, which is the essence of role-playing, that it's not one player person playing and winning. It's the interplay of all of the skills of of the characters together is what brings us our final achievement in this adventure. And, and so everybody wants a lot of skills and they want a lot of abilities and they want a lot of retirement benefits and so everybody decides that they're going to go for a full career of seven terms, that's 28 years of service, and they'll have a lot of skills out of it, they'll have a lot of benefits out of it, they'll have some money, and so we would end up with everybody being, you know, 50 years old. <laughs> And I needed to stop them from doing that because they would just keep going and going and going. And so I I introduced the survival role, which means for every four-year term of enlistment or in your career, there's a chance you will die. Uh, It's a real chance, you know, and uh, the more dangerous careers, it's an even higher chance. Well, somebody plays one term and then they survive that term. Okay, Uh, that's easy enough. They play another term. Now they're... They were a lieutenant, now they're a captain, and they roll and they survive. Am I going to go for major? And they decide at some point that they've made the survival roll and they're going to quit. Or, and they learn their lesson, no, I'm going to go one more term, and they die. And then they have to start all over. Well, that's a built-in incentive to not to get too greedy on your, who your character is going to be. And wh- I just love watching it because people just scowl when their character dies. And they're much more cautious re-rolling the next character because they've learned their lesson.
0: I think is a fascinating idea. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's it's genius. Obviously, the, the role-playing community agrees upon it as well. Um, and the idea that characters need backgrounds, I mean, that's worked its way into a lot of games since then. Uh, obviously, it wasn't in D&D at the time. Um, but uh, that's in fifth edition D and D where you you have to select a background because you need to have some experience doing something. With, with with your system though, the the idea that you can actually die during character generation, I don't I don't know any other game that does that. But you know the the role playing community certainly uh, found that to be very unique and and somewhat amusing. Amusing and
1: not universally embraced. You know that there is certainly a significant portion of the population that says if you die, we convert it to okay. They stopped. You know whatever because some people. T- just don't like it but you can't please everybody
0: right they're welcome to play how they they choose to play uh, so you're rolling you're rolling through this um th- they're making some decisions as far as careers and things like that is there there's a random element though as to events that are occurring to them is is that uh, uh is that true well,
1: there isn't even much in terms of events it's just you roll to see if if you get a promotion you Roll to see if you survive and you get a certain number of skills every time you do that. Beyond that, there's some other details, but basically it's just cycling through to see what happens. The benefit is you're moving forward. You get a little older, so you have a little bit more skills and then you roll on a table to see what you get or you pick them. It's not meant to be a narration of a real career in terms of true experience. We have some tables that you can give some character to it, but basically it's just a way of aging your character up and making him or her more mature, more equipped to deal with the world.
0: Absolutely, And and when you, when you have your character, when you've decided that, you know, you're not going to risk another, another survival role, you end up with a character that has a set of abilities that are similar to what we saw in Dungeons and Dragons. I, I, I assume that there was some influence there, right?
1: Right. Exactly right. That, that it's just somebody who's, you know, the, the difference is the traveler is levelless, that your benefit is the number of skills you have, your benefit is the resources, the money you have, the equipment that you've gained somewhere along the way. That just because you're, you don't have take more hit points because you're higher up, that doesn't make sense. Now, the other thing is we have aging. We, we've instituted aging that, you know, there are rules that say, and I wrote this when I was 30. And so I had to write a system of aging, which would, not just make you fall off a cliff when you got to a certain age, but it's set up so that after a certain age, you start losing some of your characteristics because of aging. After another age, you start losing some of your mental characteristics. And they just they go down by a point. You know, it doesn't just fall off a cliff. But I wrote it when I was 30, and here it is 40 years later. And I look at that, and I think how absolutely accurate those rules are. <laughs> Your numbers just don't go away immediately, but they do inexorably, inevitably decline. And there's not much you can do about it. You can exercise, and that'll try and stop some of it. You can do mental puzzles, and that'll keep your mind sharp. But nevertheless, it's a losing battle.
0: (laughs) And that, too, that's not something I see in a lot of role-playing games. Because in most role-playing games, you know, you have these, the higher-level characters are obviously going to be older than the the younger characters. But you'd think that, yeah, at some point, somebody who has been a fighter long enough to get to level 20, probably old enough that they're maybe not as strong as some of the younger and presumably lower level characters.
1: That's right. That's right. You know, I, I watch these wonderful movie sequences of somebody, either martial arts or just brawl, and, you know, and the guy who's really adept and he just does these wonderful footwork and handwork and can take on five or six people and knock them all out. And Traveler isn't like that. Traveler says, you know, there's a chance you're going to knock him out, but there's a chance he's going to knock you out. And the best way to win a fight is to not be in it because there's always a chance that dice are going to go against you. And you can have, you know, you want to make every, you want to have good armor, you want to have good weapons, you want to be it far enough away, you want to have other people helping you, you want to have a medic there who can help do first aid if something goes wrong. But battles aren't like movie battles, they're one of the other lessons. The best way to, to win a fight is to not get in in the first place. And
0: I think that's realistic. Yeah, and it, it speaks to, um, you know, desire to encourage people to actually role play as opposed to just choose an action, throw a die. Right, right. And so with, with the dice rolls in Traveler, most of the time when you're, when you're rolling in combat, let's say, uh, you are trying to roll under a number as opposed to d20. Well, I guess uh, original D&D did have some roll under mechanics, but it's it's predominantly rolling under is the goal, right? Well,
1: you know, if, if you're going to roll a characteristic strength, you want a high number. You know, roll two dice and seven's average and you'd want more like a 10 or 11 or a 12. It makes sense that there's more room under a 12 than there is under a 3, and so you want to roll under the number, and it's more likely that you'll succeed rolling under 12 than under 3. And so that's the natural mechanic. If you if you create a number that is high to check against, you want to roll low to reflect the relative value of each number. Originally, Traveller had roll-high things in it, and I think there's room for both. I think there's room for places where you should roll under, and I think there's places where you should roll high. They just have to be well spelled out.
0: And you even have, at least in Traveler Five, there are situations in which you might have to roll to a targeted number. Like you might have to roll a five to succeed, or something, right. something right. like that, right?
1: And and you know the dice are simply randomizers. You know that what's the chance I can jump across that river, that stream? Well, you and I know that I don't want to try and jump across it unless I'm probably going to get across without getting my feet wet. And nevertheless, you know sometimes you miss and you fall in the stream. The dice are just what are supposed to reflect those odds. And so a good game master is going to say, okay, the dice are going to reflect. You'll probably get across, but maybe you won't. So roll the dice and you'll succeed on, you know, your dexterity is a seven. So you roll your seven or less and you get across. But you know, is that what I want to, are you going to make a decision? That's a have a chance you'll miss. I'm going to take a running start, give me a couple of die mods to get across it, to get ahead of the, to have an advantage on it. That's the role playing, but that's the decision making process for the player as well. What am I going to do to make sure that that die roll comes out the way I want to?
0: And the die mod, does that change the range that you're rolling? So if you were trying to roll under a 10, you might not, you might now only have to roll under 11 or are you subtracting that from your roll? To get under the number, so if you rolled a nine but you have a negative two, it's, it it and you're going for an eight, it meets because now it's a seven. Yeah, Does it know, work both ways? Or
1: we do both ways. We have die mods and we have modifiers. You know, so the game master really has to puzzle out the situation. But you know, some of them, if you're rolling for a seven, there's a way to say that you really are rolling for a nine, which is a more a better chance of winning. It's all just applying it in the right place to players don't even think in terms of percentages. They just think of, I'm going to do everything I can to try and make it happen. You know, it reminds me of the old board war games. You would have a battle and the combat factors from the military units. And uh, there was something called three to one surrounded. If you look at the table, if I could have combat factors attacking that guy and I had a ratio of three to one and he was surrounded, it was an automatic win. Board war gamers were constantly trying to set up battles on the board to where they had brought their forces to bear to get a three to one surrounded because that meant they would win. There was no chance of losing. Same way in role playing, we're trying to do the same thing. Your player is trying to accumulate the mods with, you know, wait, I've got running shoes. Does that count? I'm going to take a running jump. I'm, I'm going to running start. Oh, um, I'm checking. I'm finding a place where the, the rocks big, stood out a little bit farther across the stream. All of those things. And you, you negotiate with the game master to say, okay, plus one on that. Plus one on that. There you go. Trying to get the best die roll opportunity possible. And that's just good planning, and that's just reflecting the, the thought processes that any reasonable person trying to make sure they succeed do. The role-playing part of the game, that's where some players don't quite get it, but once they get into it, they start seeing, yeah, that's the role-playing is the fun part of planning how I'm going to get somewhere and do something and be successful. And... Uh, covering my bases as well, that if I succeed, you know, somebody can help me pull me out of the screen.
0: Sure. And so how do the um, the skills that they pick up from their, their character generation, how are those applied? Are those just dice mods? Or um, how would you go about utilizing those in play?
1: You know, there's an interesting mechanic in Traveler 5 because basically it says you can't do it if you don't have the skill. So astrogation or, you know, yeah, we we'll call it astrogation, to plot how you how, to plot a course through jump space. If you don't have the skill, you can't do it. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know where to start. It's like most people trying to do calculus or read a calculus equation. I just don't know what that means. But if you have the skill, first, it allows you to do it. And secondly, Traveler 5 uses your characteristic as well. So you can have astrogations, you know, a, a simple task, two dice, uh, average difficulty dice. That character has astrogation skills so he can try the task and there is a characteristic that he has to use. So he's going to say, well, I've good intelligence. I've got an eight intelligence. I'm going to use that. Different character might say, I've got a nine in education. I'm going to use that. We're going to build it on a characteristic. On the other hand, if he has to do some fine manipulation, he might pick his dexterity or his even strength. To pick a characteristic, that's the foundation of what they're going to do. His intelligence of eight is what's going to be the basis for this task. The skill adds one. That's nine. We're going to have to roll nine or less on two dice. You might argue, i got an education 10, so we're going to, I'm going to use my education as the basis. Okay, 10 plus skill one, 11 on two dice. Game master can always overrule him and say, no, education doesn't work. You're going to have to use intelligence. But you structure your characteristics. It's a, a, a mix of characteristic and skill and of course a high skill is even better so intelligence eight skill five that's a 13 on two dice we're absolutely going to win and succeed on that in that situation nature once you play for a while
0: right and obviously that would be a guaranteed victory so you mentioned earlier that the characters in traveler don't have levels do the characters progress and if so how
1: there's a couple of ways. One is experience. One is self-improvement. That you know, you can always decide, I'm going to work to be better. So I'm going to just start going to the gym and working out, you know, and, and there's a role because maybe you're not going to be dedicated. You can say, no, this isn't worth it. You'll quit. But at least you can try. And if you, if you make the die rolls, then you're going to improve your strength and dexterity and endurance over the course of the next year as you go to the gym. It's just a process that you use. That's one thing. The other is that one of the standards we have is we think a character probably learns one new skill every year. Now, when you start out with prior career and taking it into account that you're eighteen to begin with, you probably have less than one most new one skill per year when you start out. But this the system gives you some skills. Once you start role-playing, we still keep track of that. And every year, either the beginning of the year or or game year, or maybe you'll generate a birthday for your character and so you know when he ages up one year, at that point the game master is going to say, the referee is going to say, okay, I'm looking back at what you've done in the last year, and I know you're a scout and you like to explore, but frankly, the thing you've done the most of has been steward, you know, you took care of the passengers on your ship the most. That's the thing that you got best at. People really liked what you did. You did well at it all the time. So you're going to get an increase of what you did the most of and the best of, which was steward, uh, taking care of passengers. So we're going to bump you up from steward two to steward three. Maybe Maybe not be what you wanted, but it was what you were doing. And that's an incentive to the player to do a lot of what he wants to get better at. If he's always the guy who's carrying the gun, then he's probably going to get better at gun carrying. If he's always the guy who's fixing the starship drives, the engineering, that's probably what he's going to get better at. And that's just kind of a, a recognition of what your character is doing by the game master on an annual basis. That's how you get better.
0: Okay. Well, hopefully after a, a year of doing this podcast, I'll get a boost to interviewer. Yeah, that's good. Interviewer too. Yeah. So, all right. So, uh, you had mentioned, uh, taking care of people on, on a ship uh, in your example, something that's unique to traveler. I mean, the fact that you need to have a ship and all of the sort of, as you mentioned, the economics and everything surrounding the ship. Could you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: Everybody wants a ship. And, uh, Unfortunately, nobody's going to give you a ship and just like, give you the, uh, the money to keep it going, too. You know, I guess you're, if you're in the Navy, you will, but everybody wants a ship. That's, that's just a basic part of it, and we had to find some reason of why people would. How people could justify having a ship and flying around and doing things. Science fiction doesn't really address that for the most part. I mentioned the Doomerest series, Dune Doom of Terra by E.C. Tubb, and it's just space opera. But he's a traveler. He's a guy going from world to world in search of some quest of answer that he can't figure out his lost homeland, home world, and he's just gets on a ship. He buys passage and goes somewhere to the next world. He doesn't have his own ship. It would be more efficient if he did, but he doesn't. We have that process. You can buy passage and go to the next world if you want to. But players want to have their own ship for a variety of reasons. And we had to have a reason why they would do that. And the best way is that they're going to use it to buy goods somewhere here cheaply and sell them over there for a higher price and make enough money to afford to keep going. It's a constant struggle. I think that the costs and benefits are carefully structured to make it a constant struggle to have enough money to meet your budget. And of course, the way to you supplement your budget is to have some patron hire you and hire your ship to go rescue his daughter kidnapped by pirates or find a lost ship with something on it that's important to him. Those patron encounters are what give people reasons to go do things. And the ship is just the method by which they get there.
0: As far as the ship design, obviously that's the second book of the original set, um, but as far as the ship layout, there's some randomization involved there as well. Is that correct?
1: We have deck plans. We show people how to do things. But basically, people build their own ships or they design their own ships. And we have some basic rules on how to do it and that they put together what they like. You know, that role playing is more than just sitting in a session and playing with a referee, it's playing with the universe and generating star systems or generating starships. Uh, designing starships, I want my ship to look like this. I want to have this. I wonder if I should do this. That's equal opportunity activity that doesn't require you have somebody else to play. And I think that, that soli- those solitaire activities are just as important as the group
0: activities. Okay, and so you you get the ship, and you, you've you've rolled up your characters. You have the background and everything. Y- you either are renting a ship, or you might have the resources to have bought it potentially from your background role, uh, from your experience, or you're you're just buying passage. Either way, the ship is is crucial. Right. And you said that you want it to be a constant struggle, going intentionally for some sort of you know eking out your existence on a frontier sort of thing. Was that was that the the idea?
1: Uh, e- exactly. That you know. There, you have the, the Dungeons and Dragons Money Monty Hall campaign where everybody just finds loads of treasure every time. And that takes away the incentive to actually do very much. That there is this twin struggle of players, for the most part, needing to have enough money to make the mortgage payment on their ship, needing to have enough money to, to do whatever they want to do. And uh, they may have an overriding, they're trying to get somewhere but even as they travel, there are money problems. And one answer is to just sky out and run away from from your mortgage. But of course, that creates its own complications. I think it it points out the characters, the character of the players. What are their choices? What choices are they going to make? Are their characters going to work hard to pay their debts? Are they going to sky out and not pay their debts? Are they going to be outlaws? Are they going to be pirates? Are they going to do any little thing that will make them money? Or are they only going to do things that are right or reasonable? Role playing is about hard choices as well as about adventuring. And we're trying to make that possible for them to make hard choices. Not necessarily the right choice but hard choices.
0: Because they could be playing a you know a otherwise good character who's found themselves in a situation where they have to do something bad just to survive or they have to you know you you, you create those and scenarios a good
1: game master a good game master is going to make those choices available and he's going to then provide them with opportunities where these are opportunities for players to flex their characters and do things and a, a simple life of just if you could just drive your ship around And every time you called it a new world, you made some money, you made made enough to pay for your fuel and your crew uh, costs and uh, your maintenance, and then you go to the next one. That's not very challenging. There's going to be a point where you make extra money, and what are you going to use it for? There's going to be a point where you need extra money. Are you going to take this job from uh, this patron, and it turns out that it's a shady deal? Are you going to still, still do it? Can you afford to do it? Are you forced to do something? Because of circumstance, what choices are you going to make? And I think that those choices reveal character about the players as well as about the characters. Of course, we can always say, but well, that's just my character. I wouldn't really do that in real life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it, you know, it gives them the opportunity again to play out some of those evil. Yeah, they're
1: evil impulses and they get it out of their system.
0: Yeah. R- right. Absolutely. And in, in a, in a relative, you know, a safe way. So. so yeah, even with the ships, you said, you know, there's mechanics there for fuel. Is there, is there maintenance and things as well? Everything that you face in real life,
1: you know, things can go wrong. You have to fix them. You need money to do that. Maybe you can fix it yourself. You have to pay crew salaries. You have to have enough money to actually buy the cargo you're taking to the next world, pay the port fees. It's just, it, it's, it's about the same as living a real life. You know, and uh, buying a new car or and saving up enough money to buy a house. All the choices you have in real life are reflected in travel. Yeah, you know, that's the difference from this in movies. I mean, where does Luke Skywalker get his money? Where does Princess Leia get her money? How much money does, you know, where do people and where do the guys on the Star Trek crew get the money when they need to go down to the world and buy something? Where does that come from? It's in there. You know, I'm going to digress him in a minute that Dungeons and Dragons is based on Lord of the Rings. I mean, everybody knows that. It's basically Mm. Lord of the Rings. Except once you start playing, players are not satisfied with throwing one big fireball in the course of their whole career to kill the Balrog. They want to go beat Balrogs and kill them with fireballs all the time. And Gary had to adjust Dungeons and Dragons to have many different spells and magic and things and monsters. Because that's what the players it? It's different than the trilogy, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's different than that story. This is the story the players themselves are creating. Players want a magic heavy universe, not the magic light universe of Lord of the Rings. Well, science fiction novels are the same way that novels are telling some story and It isn't just filled with battles every day, scientific discoveries every day, stars going nova every day. There's a story that you're trying to tell in a novel. But in role-playing, this adventure is something people want to do. They want to find something new. They want to find something important. They want to enjoy interacting with it and use their high-tech equipment to do something about it. And when it's done and they go to the next adventure, they want to do it again. There's more adventure in role-playing than there ever is in real life. And uh, we have to give them that because that's what they want. And a good role-playing manager, a good uh, referee, is going to put challenges to the players that make them make hard decisions. And if they make the right series of decisions, and if the dice come out the way they should or the way they want it to, they get what they want and they have a good time. First, the point is, they should always have a good time no matter what they do. It's not about the results, it's about the journey. I saw something interesting. You know, I, you know, this thing about it's not the destination, it's the journey. And someone clarified that for me once recently, and it was it's not the destination, it's not even the journey, it's the company you have on the way. And that's what role playing is really about. We can enjoy the journey, but it's about the interaction of the players. Of the characters and how they react to things, and that satisfaction you get—that is really the ultimate satisfaction. In both that group of players that you play with, and how good a time you have.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's sage wisdom, and I think uh, a lot of listeners have experienced that and would agree with that readily. So, as far as the uh, you know, we, we talked about the the character creation, we talked about ship mechanics and things like that a little bit. Did you have a you have rules in here for um, ship combat at some point, right?
1: Right? Space battles.
0: Is it as dicey as having a, a regular battle, or a, like, a, like a, a melee battle in your game, or is uh, is it more complicated than that?
1: It's more complex. It can be simple. So there's a Traveler novel that I wrote out there, Agent of the Imperium. There are a couple of space battles in it, and the space battles don't take much time at all, because the best way to win a space battle is to not fight it at all. There's too much chance of damage damage or unforeseen consequences. The best way to win is to have overwhelming force or to run away. But extensive rules let you deal with every possible situation. There's such a wide variety of equipment, weapons, of defenses, of armor. All of those things together help people decide what they want to do and show us the possible answers if they do have a battle. And there's literally a million possible outcomes. Those extensive rules are meant to be the, uh, the climax, the high point of a campaign where people move towards something and when it finally happens, they have the resources they need. And a good game master will make it work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We talked about the character creation. We talked about uh, the ship mechanics. We did talk about the setting a little bit. And with the Third Imperium, you had created a setting that had all the trappings in you as far as military and aliens and whatnot. But it's not, the setting is not entirely fleshed out in that there is still room for additional worlds and randomly generated worlds. And that's the third book of the the original set, right?
1: That's exactly right. You know, we've tried to give as much information as we can to help build things, but there's still plenty of room for individual worlds, individual characters, individual challenges, individual situations. That's what the role playing is all about by creating this fleshed out universe that everybody agrees on how it works and it's written into the books, players are more comfortable than trying to deal with the individual situations as they come up. Literally a game master can say, sit down and roll the dice and have a world, build a world with eight die rolls. And it's a challenge to those players. And we can have something that they have to do, whether it's find a wrecked starship and recover the, the flight recorder or explore that ruined city Whatever it is that people are trying to do, there's so much room for adventures. The well-fleshed-out universe is not restrictive. It's enabling.
0: In rolling out, uh, for instance, like a, a random planet, uh, you could actually roll out uh, something that would be in the form of a, an objective as well? Is that what you, is that what you were saying with the, the down starship? I call
1: them sparks to imagination. I mean, it just says, here's a world, it's a water. You know, if you roll up the world, then you end up with some details of it. It's so big. It has this kind of an atmosphere, but that's pretty pretty sparse. We don't really know much from that. And now the game master has to think, you know, they're, modern, they're common tropes. Go there and find something. Yes, go there and buy that thing. Go there and rescue that thing. Take a message to that person. And along the way, everything you think is the way it's supposed to be ends up not being that way, you know? The Game Master is just constantly changing things to make them more interesting. It doesn't have to be written down. I had one adventure, and it was basically, I had a theme called cleanliness, you know. And literally everything, every time we had to deal with something, it wasn't clean. You know, track tracked mud into the spaceship, and it had little bugs in it. Uh, The windscreen on the all-terrain vehicle is dirty and the windshield washers won't clean it you know all of a sudden you have a whole different theme for everything you're doing that's just the game master deciding some process some theme that he's going to use and implementing it and it makes it very interesting and very challenging without having to put a lot of thought into it all those things that we put together are meant to entertain the players and to challenge them and along the way It ends up, maybe it doesn't even matter if they achieve what
0: they were trying to do.
1: They're going to keep working towards their goal. But again, a good game master is going to make it fun along the way.
0: Absolutely. So I think that uh, covers, you know, the the game mechanics. I do have some questions about, so we're on the fifth edition of Traveler I mean it's been through so many forms because you had the the 77 box you had the 81 box and then as we moved on we had Mega Traveler we had and you actually delineate those in Traveler 5 you get into where it started getting converted into GURPS and eventually Mongoose started doing their own version and so we're on Traveler 5 now which is the direct line descendant of the original Traveler so it it follows all the Travelers that you've had a hand in because it sounds like some of them you weren't working on like the GURPS one and the the Mongoose one did you you have significant roles to play in that, or was that mostly other other teams?
1: Other people take the lead, but I certainly have a great deal of input and control on all of those.
0: Okay, and so we're we're on we're on Traveler Five now. Do you have any further plans for Traveler? Uh, do you have any, any future plans for uh, anything that you're going to be releasing uh, with Traveler or with you know Far Future that we should be looking for?
1: I'm currently working on a player's manual for Traveler Five. Basically, it's it's a simpler version of the big three-book set. And the idea is that, that it's a manual that each player has at the table with them, which covers all the little details they need, what roles to have, lists of skills, lists of things, details on how these weapons work and how much they weigh, and all that sort of stuff. Basically, a handbook for the player to use and and consult as they're playing. I mean, right now, the big book, is not accessible to the players and they need a resource to sit at the table with to help them come up with how they're going to deal with things. We'll have that maybe early next year.
0: I think that that's a something that all role-playing games need and I I don't think they all have which is something that you know obviously D&D has the player's guide but you need something that's easy for the players that and then you just have one guy that needs to get the big box set and then you just have more people playing in general because right. of that right. Yeah, so I think that's that's definitely going to be a, a good idea and make a good impact because there's no shortage of people talking still to this day talking about Traveler wanting to play Traveler people have never had the chance and are, are out there looking for it online all right well uh, where should where would you direct our listeners to go pick up Traveler 5
1: I'd tell them to go to their friendly local game store and tell them they want Traveler 5 and order it tell the store to order it that's one thing. If that doesn't work, they can go to my website, www.farfuture.net, and they'd order correct.
0: Perfect. All right. All right. Well, that's all, everything that I had, Mark. Did you have uh, any anything else that you wanted to say? This has been
1: fun talking about Traveler and about the origins of Traveler and about the historical origins of, of gaming in general. You know, I'll conclude that this is just about the best hobby in the world. It's good, clean-cut, interesting, challenging, educational. I get stories from Traveler fans who say that Traveler is why they have a Ph.D. in astrophysics now or uh, why they're successful in business. And uh, I think that it's also because of the people involved. But this hobby is just about the best hobby in the world, and I'm glad to be part of it.
0: Thank you again, Mark, for calling into the Guildhall to share your insights into Traveler and the history of tabletop roleplaying itself. We believe that all listeners should heed Mark's instructions to contact your local game store to obtain the Traveler 5 books. Even if the store is not currently open to the public, they might still be able to procure you a set, while internet retail has done a lot of good for the tabletop gaming industry. Brick and mortar game stores are essential establishments that, for decades, have provided role players the community necessary for our hobby to thrive. So, show your support and shop local when and where you are able. Hopefully, we will all be rolling dice at our favorite game stores again in the not too far future. Before we sky out, we at DDG Pod need to pay our dues. Theme music for our show is the song High Fantasy by the band Gygax. Additional music in this episode was the song Terra Exodus by the band Traveler. Be sure to check out both bands on their Bandcamp pages and many major music streaming platforms. Logo design for the show was done by Elishunist. Special thanks to Charlie at Negative Modifier Podcast, who, after last episode's initial technical issues, gave me another Audio Editing 101 course. We would also like to thank Hodag RPG, The Black Veil, and Rico Las Weishaupt for their input and help in completing this episode. Thank you again to our listeners around the world. The reception to our first episode was overwhelmingly positive and the number of downloads greatly exceeded our expectations. If you are enjoying the show, we encourage you to rate and review DDG Pod on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That concludes our second episode of Dungeon Designers Guild. So, all you space scouts and Imperial infantry, we escaped again. But remember, next time, we might not be so lucky.